0: Good morning. I'm just going to start with prayer as we get in today. Thank you, Lord, for this time that we can come before you. And God, I just pray that you would speak through me, speak these words, Lord, that as we, as we see that the Son does set free and that those who he sets free are free indeed. Lord, we want to walk in that freedom. Lord, would you just uh, fill this place with your spirit. We pray this in your name. Amen. A wolf was almost dead with hunger when he happened to meet a house dog who was passing by. Ah, cousin, said the dog, I knew it would be. Your irregular life will soon be the ruin of you. Why do you not work steadily as I do and get your food given to you regularly? I would have no objection," said the wolf, if I could only get a place. I will easily arrange that for you said the dog. Come with me to my master, and you can share my work. So the wolf and the dog went towards the town together, and on the way there, the wolf noticed that there was a certain part of the dog's neck that was very much worn away, so he asked how that had come to be. Oh, it's nothing, said the dog. That's only the place where the collar is put on at night to keep me chained up. It chafes a bit, but you get used to it. Is that all, said the wolf. Then goodbye to you, master dog. The moral of the story for Aesop, better starve free than be a fat slave. Many people think they're like the wolf in this story. But what if I told you that the human condition, that our default, that we're actually like the dog? You know, I felt this, thinking I was free from one thing, only to find out I just replaced my slavery to that thing with slavery to another thing. When I was in high school, I was starting to break free from the effects of heart disease. I was finally able to kind of unofficially but officially play sports, all I wanted. And so, sports became everything to me. I began to think about sports all the time. I wanted to perform well at everything. Everything I thought about was sports. I started trading the time that I'd be reading my Bible to think about playing sports. I thought I was free from my heart condition, but really, I was totally becoming a slave to another heart condition, one preoccupied with performance and athletic achievement. And then I tore my ACL in my senior year of high school, and I began to see that athletic achievement was a master that would only let me down, make me a slave to it, and then crush me under its expectations, bringing with it promises that wouldn't deliver. Now, I'm not saying athletic stuff is bad. I still really enjoy playing sports. But when it becomes an ultimate, the most important thing, it's like slavery. The thing that we love the most in life, the thing that gives us a a sense of meaning and purpose, that's basically our master. Everyone has something that is ruling over them, in a sense, leading them. Now, we've been looking at the storyline of the Bible these past four weeks The big picture, so to speak. We've been looking at the biblical stories to help us understand and make sense of our story. See, everyone has a story, but only one story redeems all of our stories. And so, this story that we've been calling the story of hope, this is the story where God has moved so beautifully in history that he's made it clear that he's the one worth making our leader, worth following. But in the opening chapters of the Bible, we find... That something's gone wrong. When Adam and Eve sin, when they disobey God, they chose basically to be their own gods. To eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was basically to say that they believed they could live without reference to God and his ways. They made the rules. and So things got distorted. They became slaves to sin, no longer free. They might have thought that their knowledge gave them freedom, but really it meant slavery. It meant that sin was introduced, and it affected everyone. In the New Testament, Paul says this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, in this way, death came to all people, because all sinned. So what started with Adam has continued on. And none of us can break free. We're all born slaves, unable to break ourselves out. But even in the midst of that enslavement, When sin and death enter into the story and just wreck everything, we're given a promise. While Adam and Eve are being exiled, removed from the Garden of Eden, as we heard about four weeks ago, God says to the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Now, this is the first promise That God is already at work, way back in Genesis, at setting things right. That there will be someone, a human being from the offspring of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent. That will crush deceit and sin and death. But we find out the serpent will strike that person's heel. Now this is the first promise. But as the story goes on, we get to see glimpses of God's love and deliverance. We find in Genesis 12 that God is going to bless the world through the offspring of a guy named Abraham. It says in Genesis 12, 1-3, this, he promises Abraham and again to his son Isaac and to his son Jacob that he would make of them a great nation and that through their offspring, all of the nations of the world would be blessed. And so we're following Abraham's line now. We're looking at them and we're waiting for this serpent-crushing offspring of Eve. And as we learned last week from Pastor Dave, that gets a little bit narrower we come to find that it will be someone from David's offspring who would be king on the throne. And so we're then waiting for a serpent-crushing king. That person would be the one to set us free from sin and death. Now, in the Old Testament, as we're looking for this serpent crusher, we're following the people of Israel. These are the descendants of Abraham. And we're looking at their story because in their story, God is revealing his character, his purposes towards those who are called God's people. How will God move to set his people free from sin? Does this God follow through on his promises? What's the pattern of this redemption, freedom that we're waiting for? How does God's redemption show itself? We're still waiting for the serpent crusher. In Genesis 50, the descendants of Jacob, they move to Egypt because of a famine in the land. And God works a great miracle through Joseph, one of the descendants of Jacob, one of his sons. So the people end up in Egypt, and while they're in Egypt, They become slaves. Pharaoh, with his own enslavement to sin and in seeking the wealth and prosperity of Egypt, justifies enslaving all of the Israelite and Hebrew people. He lays heavy burdens on them. He oppresses them. It gets so bad that the people cry out to God, deliver us. Now, Pharaoh orders that the new Israelite baby boys be killed, thrown into the Nile River. This is genocidal. He says that all newborn boys, who are Hebrew, should be put to death. It gets bad. Through some amazing work, God chooses and raises up Moses to be the one who'd lead Israel out of Egypt, back to the land that God promised their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So when it comes time for Moses to demand that the people be let go, Pharaoh completely refuses to let them go. And so through Moses... God does ten plagues, which bring hardship, destruction, and death to Egypt. See, God knew that Pharaoh wasn't going to listen to him, that his heart would be hardened towards him. But still, he sends Moses to go and relay the message, let my people go. The nine plagues that God sends on Egypt, they not only help save Israel, but they judge Egypt. See, the plagues show that the gods of Egypt, the things that Egypt trusts in and worships, They're powerless, that God is really the only one worth worshiping and following. So after nine successive plagues, he still holds out. He still says no. When God names Israel his firstborn son, he threatens the death of Pharaoh's firstborn son if he doesn't free Israel, and still Pharaoh refuses. None of the earlier plagues had touched the Israelites who were living separately from the rest of Egypt, but this last one, this tenth plague, Will. This is called the Passover. And so, unless Israel believes God and follows His direction, then all of their firstborn will die too. And this gives us a key glimpse into an important piece of God's redemption. On a certain day, a young male lamb without blemish is supposed to be taken into every Israelite household. And four days later, the lamb is to be killed and the blood wiped across the doorposts of each house. Then they cook the lamb, they eat it with herbs and unleavened bread. And while they're eating, everyone's supposed to be ready to get up and go on a long journey. So God says then, on that night, I will execute judgment on the gods of Egypt. Where there's blood on the house, God will pass over it, and no death will come to those in it. Then there's there's supposed to be a feast dedicated to this. This becomes something that's so fundamental to Israel's identity. So important for them to remember. And so that very night, the angel of death passed over those who had the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. But on those who didn't, judgment came upon them. And this actually shows us the pattern of redemption. The Passover shows us that redemption involves not only the release from slavery, but the shedding of blood as a means of escape from judgment. So finally, Pharaoh, he lets them go, he gets mad, and he, he runs after them, and he ends up trapping them at the Red Sea. So there's nothing Israel can do to get away, but God again makes a way, opening a way for them to cross through the sea on dry land, and then he closes the water over the Egyptian army, destroying it, and finally freeing Israel. And this gives the people freedom, right? Does it really? You see, God has set the people free from political slavery, but like the dog in Aesop's fable, there's still a kind of slavery that's just not quite as visible. And it too needs the shedding of blood to actually escape it. And that slavery is still very much alive and well today. In fact, much of the world is still living in it. We find that the enemy in this slave master isn't just outside the group of Israel, it's actually within them. There is a spiritual, an internal problem that's keeping them enslaved. The people of Israel are set free, and then almost immediately, they make a golden calf and begin to worship it, even though it was Yahweh, God, who just delivered them from Egypt. And they're worshiping this calf. They're ungrateful to their core. They have a major problem. They needed something internally changed to deal with the deep-rooted problem of sin's selfish desires. And the same goes for us. We need something internally changed to deal with the problem of sin, selfish desires in our own lives. Because this is something that the people could never actually break free of on their own. And something we'll never break free of on their own. Before we can ever hope to begin to live a life without sin, we need freedom from the change, the things that bind us and hold us back. Paul speaks of what his life was like before he knew Christ. And he says this in Romans 7. I am unspiritual. Sold as a slave to sin. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me. Waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? God's people. They were like Paul. After they had been set free, God made a covenant and said, Obey this and you will be blessed. They knew what was sin and what was good. God made it clear to them, but they couldn't carry it out. Because deep within them were the seeds of rebellion. The same seeds of rebellion that had seen Adam and Eve choose to obey the serpent rather than God. And that's all of our experience before we know the freedom that is in Jesus. We have this sinful nature We've seen it evidence when we were just children. There's those seeds of rebellion. We can't break free from it on our own. We might think that we can hide it, but when no one's looking, what is there? Selfishness, miserable despair, addiction, pain, anger, hatred, little white lies. You know, we say we want to be free, but so often our freedom is replaced with just a new kind of slavery. Jesus talks about this in his story of the prodigal sons, about the chains that we had because of our sin. Let me just read half the story. Luke fifteen, eleven to 17. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. He explains how the younger prodigal son, in trying to be free from his father, begins to basically use all the good things that have come from his father. His riches, his body, his clothes, food, drink. And he begins to use them with absolutely no regard for where they came from. How he takes these good things, and by using them for his own gain and his own glory, they totally destroy him. Here's what he says. Tealucos says, the more unhappy and lost the son feels, the more he celebrates. The more he throws himself into the company of his friends. The more he diverts himself. What did we say? He cannot be alone. He must have diversion. And one day, this realization must have struck the prodigal son too. He says, it strikes us all at some time or other when God is gracious as to remove the blinders from our eyes. But when he cannot, and therefore must, he He's no longer free. No, God knows he is not free. This is the great new thing that suddenly dawns upon him. Him who, after all, set out to be free. Free above all from his father. He is bound to his homesickness, so he must amuse himself. He is bound to urges, so he must satisfy them. He is bound to a grand style of living, and therefore he cannot let it go. That's what freedom looks like outside the father's house. To be bound. To have to do this and that. To be under a spell. To be compelled to... Pursue the path he's chosen by an inexorable law. His friends and others, when they look at him, think, what an imposing free man. But, Shilika says, he, the prodigal son, who sees his condition from the inside, knows differently. The world outside sees only the facade and what is put in the show window of this botched up life. But he hears the rattle of invisible chains in which he walks, and they are beginning to make him groan but nobody helps him and nobody really knows him. Only the distant father who watched him go away knows. And we know, if we're honest, that this story is our story too. And so the question is, how does Paul leave the slavery he talks about in Romans 7? Where does his real freedom come from? We find out in Romans 8 the very first verse, where that freedom comes from. And he says this in Romans 8.1, Now, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, in the big story of the Bible, this theme of freedom from slavery, Jesus Christ is the Passover lamb that the first exodus is pointing to. There is a new exodus. The lamb's blood covering the doors caused God's wrath to be passed over. Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect and sinless life, covers us. He was the unblemished lamb. John the Baptist cried out to Jesus, He is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The pattern of redemption that the Passover was showing was that an innocent lamb was covering for God's people so that death passed over them. You know, humanity has been outside of Eden since Adam and Eve rebelled. All people are sinners, slaves needing redemption. The exodus from Egypt tells us the condition of sinners, which are all of us, and shows us that the pattern of of God's redemption, the way that God will redeem sinners from their sinful condition through the shedding of the blood of an innocent lamb. And so the new exodus in Jesus Christ reveals to us that Jesus is the lamb who actually redeems us, all people, not just Israel, but all people from their sinful condition. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb. It was through dying that Jesus fulfilled the promise made to Adam and Eve that the serpent's head would be crushed. But that the serpent would strike the heel of the promised offspring. And yeah, the heel gets struck. Jesus dies on the cross. The lamb was sacrificed for our forgiveness, for our ransom. Like a slave to go free would have to pay a ransom price. It was paid with Jesus' blood. But it was in that that the head of the serpent was crushed. The promise of salvation from the fall was fulfilled. And so what does that mean for us if we trust in Jesus? What difference does that make in our lives? I remember during my first year of college, I had... I was going to a prayer room during a missions conference. I remember being, having struggled with sin and really wanting and needing prayer. And so I went to this prayer room and I shared um, a few things I wanted to get off my chest with this person who was there to pray with me and, and ask for prayer for some other things. And this guy just latched on to that sin that I brought up. And he basically was like, this is what you need to deal with today. And as we prayed, he took oil out and he put it on my wrists placed it on my wrist, and he said, you believe in Jesus. See? You've been set free. There are no chains here holding you back. You don't need to sin. You're not chained. You're unbound. Christ has set you free. It was symbolic. It was symbolic of the fact that I really wasn't changed. I really didn't need to keep doing that sin that was prevailing in my life that I could act, that actually Christ had victory over it. His death had actually made me free. I really was set free from that power of sin and death through Jesus. And so when Paul when he, he's talking with Christians in Corinth in 1 Corinthians who are giving in to sexual pleasures, who in our day are doing things like checking the internet out for pleasure or acting on their urges. He says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Basically, the ransom price has been paid. You're free. You don't need to give in to the sinful nature's urges anymore. And so therefore, he says, glorify God in your body. Use it the way the Father who gave it to you Intended, And again, when Paul's talking to Galatians, these people who basically they're making up rules to add on to their faith. They're saying, yeah, to be a Christian, you've got to believe, but then do this, this, and this. And he's saying that, you know, that's an old habit of, of trying to save yourself, control your salvation. And he cries out to these people. He says, stand fast and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Christ has set people free from having to subject themselves to unattainable goals. Instead, setting them free to enjoy true freedom in the good news of Jesus. And we do this sometimes, too. But Paul, he continues to encourage Christians, us and the Corinthians, to stop chasing these things, to stop chasing things that won't fulfill. Stop chasing old bad habits. And he he appeals to this in, in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. He says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Remember this. Look at this. Get rid of this sin by looking at Christ, who has been sacrificed for you. Don't follow after these passions and submit to them again. You have been set free. And you know, we do this sometimes. We hear it, and we just go off and think, whatever. And we make choices out of freedom that often lead to slavery for us. Theologian Tom Schreiner, he shares a story about his dad. He started smoking as a choice because he was free to do what he wanted. But later, he became completely enslaved by that choice. He couldn't shake the habit, even when he had an oxygen tank at the end of his life. He still smoked. He thought he was free like the prodigal son in Jesus' story, but he ended up becoming a slave to the habit. That's the kind of fake freedom that sin and idolatry promises. You know, if you make money or power your goal, you'll never have enough, as Dave shared about in his message last week. If you make sexual pleasure your goal, it will destroy you, like smoking, with pornography triggering the same kind of reaction cocaine has on your brain. It's addictive. If power is what you want, you will never be satisfied. You'll always want more. And whatever authority you have, you'll abuse others to get more. Whatever you devote your life to, even the good things in this life, if they become your ultimate, if you make that the most important thing, the thing that leads you on, it will never satisfy you, and you will be a slave to it and let down by it. We needed to be set free from the slavery that leaves us shackled to desires that just can't fulfill us. We need God to live in our hearts, to transform us. We need true freedom, and true freedom comes only from trusting in Jesus, and making him king over our lives, our leader, rightly being the ultimate and most important thing. Just like the Passover was the last plague that caused Israel to be set free from slavery, Christ is the sacrifice. His death on the cross gives us freedom from the sin and its final consequence, death. Our chains are gone because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is what we celebrate at the table. Jesus said in Mark 10:45, he said, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The people who heard Jesus use the word ransom, they knew what it meant. In the Roman world, slaves would be owned. They'd have a ring through their ear. They were owned by their masters. And to go free, it cost something. A ransom. A price. There was a price for it. They needed to somehow be purchased. Something had to be paid for them. And Christ... He was our ransom. In Revelation 5, verse 9, the elders cry out to the Lamb, who is Jesus, and they say, You are worthy because you were slain, and you purchased with your blood persons for God from every tribe and people and tongue and nation. He set people free through his blood. Jesus was our ransom. His blood paid the price, poured out for us, paid the price for our sin. And so as we come to the table today, I just want to encourage you to pray through, to reflect on this Passover, to reflect on the beautiful thing that God has done to make a way for you to be set free from your sin.